everyone. Welcome to the Quantum Heart Cafe, a show where I talk about uh, books and topics um, and subject matter that uh, I'm interested in and uh, and that is related to current events going on in the wider world, but they're the type of current events that aren't really being uh, talked about by, um, you know, people. The, the mainstream media or even the alt media um and there are topics of like technology especially the rollout of web3 and all these other new technologies that people aren't really uh talking about but it's really important to have these discussions and as well as sharing my love of uh psychology and spirituality and just other topics and, and perspectives and subject matter that I feel are important. And so it's taking all of that and then uh, putting it into the heart of a cafe. Because, you know, cafes are places where um, people go and have discussions and talk about things and discuss. Or it could be uh, like one of the reasons why I love going to coffee shops is I could take a book and read and, and do my some writing and enjoy a chai latte. I'm starting to get away from drinking coffee all the time, but um, yeah, so it's just kind of taking those sorts of things like the the spirit and feel of a coffee shop and then the kind of the spirit the spirit and feel of uh, reading books and having discussions about books and then relating them to uh, kind of current events and real life situations and putting that into a podcast. <laughs> so that's what the Quantum Heart Cafe is about. And ultimately, I'm hoping that uh, listeners will come away with something uh, that will be of interest or something that's useful or just encouraging you to explore and read the books that I talk about for yourself and become interested in these uh, topics as well. So thank you so much for stopping by the cafe and if you enjoy what you're listening to, please consider uh, subscribing and uh, and sharing this with others. Uh, and then so uh, without further ado, let's begin today's show. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Quantum Heart Cafe. I hope you've been doing well and uh, enjoying, uh, and that you enjoyed your the first month of the the new year, January. I know I haven't been uh, around again. Uh, I've been dealing with a, a, I think I got um, a bit of a lung infection, and I've been dealing with that for the last couple of weeks. But now, um, I think I've gotten to the point where. I could talk long enough without breaking into a fit of coughing, uh, just because I, like, for longest, for the last couple of weeks, I couldn't, well, I could talk and stuff, but it's just like it would irritate my throat, and then I would break out into, like, this coughing uh, fit. I'm not sure what it was, but my body did not a good job of getting rid of it, and I, you know, I was just drinking, staying home, and staying warm and drinking lots and lots of teas. I suspect I have an idea what happened. Like, in um, back in January, you know, we had a really 
uh, a big cold spell. And, you know, a few days before that, I noticed that the, you know, planes and so on were out spraying in the skies because there is such thing as geoengineering. And, um, you know, there, and it was quite a bit of stuff. So I imagine, you know, if you're spraying aluminum and all, so all sorts of stuff in the sky, that's, that's probably what contributed to um, me getting something. And it was just artificially cold. Like, you know, it does get cold in the winter where I'm at, but it's pretty mild here, like, most of the time. Um, but this was down in, like, the double digits, and that's not really natural for um, where I live. And I know that, you know, there is a thing around, like, climate change and stuff like that, but there is also engineering. And if you don't believe me, that's okay. Maybe this isn't for you, but there is such thing as uh, weather manipulation, and they do do that in the sky. I mean, have you ever looked up in the sky and see how, like, the weird waves and stuff, and, and seeing that maybe that's not really a normal cloud? <laughs> like, clouds don't usually do that, uh, natural ones anyway. Um, so that's my theory as to why I got sick. Uh, so I'm going to uh, try recording this show and you know my voice might be get a little hoarse I do have some uh water I don't have any coffee with me today because it does get uh you know I mean I still drink it in the morning but it's just if I do it before the show then I imagine maybe that'll make my voice a little more or my at least my throat a little more irritated and then I'll start bursting out into coughing again <laughs> um but, you know, this kind of goes into my, my moment of gratitude. I am glad that I'm almost over it. Like, I feel like I'm at the kind of tail end of it. Um, and that I'm just grateful that it didn't turn into something else because that would have um, been a real bummer, you know. Uh, and I, I'm grateful just to come back and to continue my show. And thank you for your patience. I, I have been meaning to continue... Uh, talking about Beyond the Box, the book about B.F. Skinner and his behavior, <laughs> technology behavior, you know, behavior engineering. Because um, I've been talking about that book for my last few shows, like just uh, talking about the different, like the summarizing the different topics uh, in the chapters. And if you're interested, you can go back and listen to those. Um, because I'm really interested, I have been following... Alison McDowell's work and, and a few others and I'm really interested in learning how like the history of token economics and the history of behavior engineering and B.F. Skinner was one of the major pioneers for behavior engineering and I feel like it's really important to have that historical uh, context just for understanding the technologies and like the the direction that uh, the system would like us to go towards and like the the behavior technologies that are uh, coming online right now. Uh, so without further ado, I am going to uh, continue talking about the book. I might not have as long a show just because uh, it just depends on how my uh, throat feels, but I'll do my best to get through this next section of the book. And uh, in the last section, I talked about uh, how behavior... Uh, engineering, especially token economies, started up in mental hospitals and schools. And so uh, this chapter that I'm going to be talking about is a continuation 
of that, but in prisons, like in the juvenile uh, detention centers and in, and in uh, uh, you know, prisons. And I also want to say that if you hear or see the word contingency and management, that's another way of talking about like token economics and behavior engineering. So it's kind of another way of saying the same thing. Uh, so I, I will be saying like either contingency management or token economics or behavior engineering, and they all like they're slightly different, but they are interrelated. So um, yeah, so I just wanted to say that, and I'm going to begin just summarizing the <clears throat> the um, chapter is called Crime and Punishment, uh, Contingency Management in the Prison System. And so it's just a continuation of the book that I've been talking about, which is beyond the the box um, about behavior, uh, technology, and B.F. Skinner. Okay. So the chapter starts by talking about the National Training School for Boys in Washington, D.C., and where an experiment was done on a group of boys by taking them and placing them in a total learning environment to boost their academic performance. Uh, the program was called Case 1, and that, stood, and that stands for Contingencies Applicable to Special Education. And it was spearheaded by her, a man named Harold, Harold Cohen. Uh, the project director uh, Harold, was Harold, Harold Cohen. Sorry. And Cohen was a... Um, he was kind of, he was interested, he was, he, his background comes from design. Uh, he has a design background and he was attracted to behaviorism as he felt the environment played an important role in shaping human behavior. Um, and uh, so case one eventually expanded into case two, um, which involved 41 young men living together. <clears throat> the building they were living in was designed to improve and expand their or academic and social uh, repertoire. And eventually, Case 2 would be used in prisons across the United States. And, um, you know, as I kind of said earlier, the what took over from token economies was something called contingency management. Um, and... Uh, I do. I did make a point from the book, or that not everyone saw behavior modification as a good thing, and uh, they saw it as a means to increase institutional control and deny prisoners basic rights. So basically, that was kind of saying that they would use um, that there would be a like, there's people that uh, thought that there would be that the institutions would use behavior engineering to get the prisoners just to do maybe be less of a problem and just do what the institution wants like um you know make their beds and uh just have more desirable behaviors rather than helping uh prisoners um kind of develop into i don't know if I want to like c citizens that could be uh, rehabilitated and then go back to living their lives in society uh, I kind of see where that come like that uh, that's coming from and I kind of feel the same way because you know it's just throughout history sometimes these things sound like they're good ideas on paper 
and then <laughs> they're tried out in the world and well i'm sure lots of people have good intentions with them it's very easy for you know people with nefarious intentions to abuse something like this like to abuse uh behavior engineering and even tech the technologies that are coming out now it's very you know that i'm sure there's well meaning and well-intentioned people uh, using these technologies, but I feel like that it's really important that we have a discussion about, you know, behaviorism and the science of behavior technology because it is something where it could be used to abuse other people and to uh, through trying to control and manage like behavior and outcomes and trying to steer and have people go in a certain direction. Um, or go down a certain direction so that's just I kind of see where they're coming from and I feel the same way which is why I'm having these discussions it's not to like demonize or completely say that all this stuff is bad it's more so to have a discussion and, and see if maybe you know is this even you know do we really need token economics do we need behaviorism is there something else that <laughs> we can try doing that's a bit more fulfilling and helpful for uh, people because uh, um, I don't really know if I really want to live in a token economy or to have participate in behavior engineering for um, the system because it's I feel like it's just something where it's easy for something to go wrong and for you know innocent people to get hurt especially children um, which is why I'm talking about this. <clears throat> so to continue the chapter, um, the author con has continues uh, to talk about Case. Um, and she does mention that Harold Cohen was a student of Buckminster uh, Fuller at the Institute of Design in Chicago. And he, um, he wasn't a direct student of Skinner's, um, Harold Cohen, and he wasn't a psychologist, but I think he was very much influenced by Skinner's work because um, <clears throat> Cohen was interested in how the environment has shaped human behavior and learning. And one of his early projects was uh, setting up a design school. And eventually Cohen did meet a bunch of, of uh, Skinner, Skinnerian, <laughs> Skinner um, type psychologists. And he uh, met people involved with um, setting up token economies. So he eventually took up the challenge of setting up a total learning economy as a program, which would integrate uh, all those things I just talked about, like token economics and behavior engineering. And so the ter total learning environment that Cohen, uh, Harold Cohen created, uh, so it was a class of 65 students from the lower third of uh, Ilianolis's uh, graduating high school seniors. So that's, that's in Chicago, I think. Um, and he designed the experimental freshman year program. So he wanted to boost the performance of uh, low achievers. The major influences for this program uh, was Skinner's operant conditioning, design principles, and advances in program uh, instructions. So a key feature of the program were cubicles made up of cardboard booths that were controlled environments for learning 
and studying. And there was also two lounges, a lecture room, and an area for group work. <clears throat> um, Cohen really enforced the idea that the cubicles were meant for studying. And uh, so when he went to the National Training School for Boys, uh, his main goal was to prepare as many of the students to return to high school or take high school equivalency. So the two major focuses of the program uh, was the token economy, uh, where students earn points for their performance, and engineering the environment for maximum performance. Uh, students would earn lounge access or a private room for good performance. So I guess if they're not uh, if they're struggling with school, if they're not performing well, they don't get any access to a lounge or even a private space because I think they started off with uh, a communal space with no privacy uh, and then they had to earn it. So it's kind of similar to how I talked about <clears throat> in the last show where there was, um, I think it was an Anastate hospital they where they developed the token economy and they worked with... Uh, female patients who had different mental um, uh, kind of handicaps and I think the major one was the schizophrenia and same thing like if they wanted to you know if the patients there wanted a private room or even just wanted a private uh, locker for their stuff so it wouldn't get stolen like they had to earn tokens and <clears throat> you know have good performance right otherwise they wouldn't have those things and so I mean, is that what they're going to do in wider society if we, uh, with the token economy and stuff, if we don't have good performance or if we don't do, follow, like, like if we don't measure, ha like, uh, meet up to certain standards or if the, the metrics and the, and the KPIs and stuff determine that we're not, uh, performing well, do we not, is that, do we lose our, our privacy? I mean, I guess that kind of already happens anyway, like, um, long before the token economy, I mean, if you weren't considered air quote valuable or you're not making a tr contribution that the system deems is valuable for it, then you kind of do get pushed off to the margin and it does become, and it can become difficult making a, um, a, you know, a living or even just being pushed and ostracized by your community sometimes if you have maybe a different way of thinking or you know if you don't agree with something so it, it already does happen but it's like the token economy is like adding metrics and measurement because I feel like tokens are more are kind of like a measure of human behavior so if you're not performing you don't get um you know, you don't get the tokens and like and in the prison or in the instance of Harold Cohen's experiment, you know, if you're not performing, then you don't have access to, you know, certain privileges and then you don't have, uh, you know, you don't even get something like a private room. Um, okay, so to continue, uh, the building, the building that housed the students was a multi-level uh, Skinner box. And it became uh, Cohen's behavior laboratory. So the design was intentional and each floor was designed for an intentional purpose. And that also kind of reminds me of the, uh, 
the condos and stuff that they're putting up. I remember like saying in during like one of Allison's, uh, I think it was maybe a comment during one of her presentations or something uh, that, you know, and other people have made this comment too, that maybe the condos and stuff that they're building, because they're all kind of made of glass. And at least in my city, and I imagine it's similar for other cities, like they build them quite high now, like at least like 50 floors. Oh, yeah, I've seen them go up to 50 floors. I imagine they can go up even higher in some other cities. Um, but if you wanted to study a whole group of people, yeah, that's a really easy way to do it. And most of them are made of glass and concrete, so there's not much privacy anyway. I mean, yes, they have curtains and stuff like that, but, I mean, it's like having a... It almost reminds me of a Skinner box or, like, an ant farm or something like that. And there is, like, the... You know, I did talk about a little while ago the book on emergence and there is like, you know, they do, the system is really interested in studying uh, the behave, the emerging behavior of like um, species, like uh, kind of large spe like uh, species like ants and slime mold cells, termites, bees, human beings, like species with different intelligences, but then they, it's like, they're part of like a bigger intelligence within their societies and stuff. And so I think, um, I know that there's like a, a real interest in studying that. And so it's just like, it's like almost like those co condos or like a Skinner box or an ant box or something where, you know, you could observe, uh, behavior and they are starting to put like, you know, the system is starting to put like sensor technology and means of observing people in the their apartments already, uh, even outside their apartments. But just think of all the internet things, devices, and like the um, all the different kind of uh, you know, if you have smart washers and smart dryers and stuff like that, or if you have like one of those like Alexis things. Um, I think it's called Alexis, is it? Like the that thing that talks to Amazon. And maybe there's some other ones too, but you know, to think that they're not observing you, even if you have it air quote turned off, like they are, and they collect data, and their our cell phones collect data. Um, so there is a way to observe our behavior already, like it's already being built, and they've also put a lot of sensor networks within the cities to make them smart cities. Um, so it is in Hawaii already had, like there is like Skinner boxes all over the place now. Um, and again, this is why I talk about it cause it's really important to, I just think it's important to think about these things and have these conversations and just ask ourselves is, is this something that we really need? Is this necessary? Like, do we want to ha be surrounded by sensor networks all over the place and be guided and steered, um, by you know, by these kind of behavior metrics, which kind of ultimately go into um, guiding and steering our consciousness. <laughs> so, it, you know, it's important to, to talk and think about these things. Um, okay, and then just to continue with the total learning experiment, um, the correctional officers were, were also able to give points based on good behavior. 
uh, if the kids didn't go along with the program, they would stop receiving uh, privileges and live in standard prison conditions, which i.e. no, which means no privacy. The boys selected were uh, mixed race and had a history of crime. Uh, the boys were tested for basic performance level and then given educational packets. So uh, studying or scoring above 90% was how they would earn as how they would earn their points. Um, and the, <clears throat> the author of the book, they talk about the results of the program. So uh, some of the results of the program were uh, reading increased by 26%. Uh, math and at the senior level went up by 25%. Science at the senior level went up by uh, 18%. English at the senior level increased by 33%. Uh, social studies at the senior level increased by 39%. Uh, before the program, none of the students achieved junior or senior level in their courses. Um, and the junior reading level before the program was at 37%. Uh, prison and government officials wanted to know if the programs help students become productive members of society. They followed up with 31 of the 41 uh, students in the program, and they found that the program delayed the students' return to the penal, penal system, so the prison system, and their behavior would need additional maintenance for the case program to be effective. Uh, there were some participants that did gain self-esteem and confidence via the system. So, I don't know, to me that, because again, like with the behavior, and I think that's sub something that's been a criticism of token economics is that does it really change behavior or like once the tokens and the contingency management programs are taken away, you know, how long do the the people or even, you know, the animals and the other beings that have been uh, subject to behavior modification, how long do they keep up with these, you know, supposed new behaviors before they go back to doing what they did before? And in the case of prisoners and, and people going back to the penal colony, like, you know, there is something in, at least in the United States, and I think in Canada, called the criminal record. It's not easy getting a job or finding or just living if you have a criminal record, especially if you're black or, 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 or brown. Like, it's even harder. And that's something that society purposely, the system purposely built into itself. Um, and even if you're poor, um, if you're a poor white person, or if you have, um, if you come from a poor neighborhood, you know, if you come out, even if you do this and you come out of prison with a good, like high performance for high school, that's great. But like, you know, what do you do if you come back in the community that you're living in is broken because of the economic policies and like the, um, this what the society the system has done to uh, communities because it will, um, you know, rob and drain communities of of resources and, and people, and it will, you know, severely limit a person's ability to just live and have the basic needs and necessities, and it does this by design. Um, so, 
And I think that this behavior engineering and this behaviorism misses a lot of that. And this isn't woke anything. It's just if you look in the history of labor and the history of like, <clears throat> like capitalism, what has gone on, then these things happen. Like, you know, let's say a big company, like the automate auto auto like the big car companies and stuff that at one time, you know, provided decent wages for workers in certain parts of the states, but you know, if they fold up and they go to another country where they can um have cheaper labor, then that kinda leaves <clears throat> a bit of a hole or a bit of a vacuum in the community and it can be really hard for a community to recover from that. So that's kind of my my two cents about that. Um, there's a bit more about the cell block communities. Um, so I'll just kind of summarize that because they did, uh, like token economies and stuff did get started up in other prisons too. Um, and one of them being the Draper Correctional Center located in uh, Elmore, Alabama, which had another t contingency program set up. Uh, the program was set up by Carl Clements and John McKee, who wanted to set up an experimental laboratory in a correctional facility for the purpose of behavior modification experiments. Uh, so while the two researchers wanted to set up a program uh, centered on education and vocational jobs, the Draper facility wanted to create a program that focused on behaviors important for the institution. So that's kind of like how I kind of mentioned that earlier uh, in the in this talk. And the faculty, um, the faculty's administration thought that that would be an important step towards rehabilitation. Uh, so some of the target behaviors for the token economy program at, at Draper were, were, you know, making the bed, cleaning the area around the bed, and maintaining a neat and groomed uh, personal appearance. Uh, the inmates involved with the program uh, were separated and housed in one of Draper's top floors. They could use their tokens to buy access to the lounge, pool room, and the TV room. Uh, there was a bank account set up where people could save their tokens. Uh, the prison monitored prisoners as they checked in and out of the area, much like Cohen's program with the uh, the young boys. And uh, so behavioral checklists were used throughout the duration of the program to ensure the token economy uh, wasn't creating undue hardship. And by 1974, the public had grown concerned about behavior modification programs in prisons. Um, and it's interesting to note that without the token economy, as soon as it was stopped, prisoners reverted back to their baseline behavior. So that's kind of like what I was talking about uh, earlier, is like how effective are these programs? Um, and then there's the rehabilitation dilemma. So another uh, contingency program was created by a young behavior analyst, so not a clinical psychologist, and he interned for over 18 months with the prisoners. Uh, he tried to creating a contingency management program for inmates at two maximum security prisons, and the guy's name, I think the young 
behavior analyst, his name was uh, Geller. I can't remember what his first name was, but the goal of the program was to manage uh, problem behaviors uh, and not return uh, productive law abiding citizens to the society. Uh, he wanted to have prisoners return to the general population so that they could uh, participate in the programs like educate or sorry in the prisons uh, educational and vocational programs. So the contingency management program encompassed the token economy as well. And to get tokens, prisoners had to earn or engage in the following activities. So basic hygiene, uh, specific education, and job-related opportunities. So that's similar to the other uh, types of programs. And so this rehabilitation program that Geller set up uh, worked in four stages. So the first stage was conventional restrictions found in segregation. Uh, the second stage was programmed instruction in typing. The third stage was formal typing courses with an instructor. And the fourth stage was the transfer to less restrictive areas of the prison and access to vocational training and education. Um, the behaviorists did, did face push, pushback in a number of obstacles for this. Um, so they got pushback from prisoners. A lot of staff were unwilling to participate in the program. Uh, the public also pushed back against behavior modification programs. The ACLU didn't care for the program either because it was largely uh, largely uh, white middle class values. These psychologists were pushing uh, mostly black prisoners. Um, and I imagine they probably did more than just that, but um, that have to be researched for another day. But I just wouldn't be surprised if there was other stuff going on. Um, and then eventually Geller's program got shut down, as well as many other behavior modification programs. Um, and with that, the, the, the author of the Beyond the Box, she starts talking about the beginning and the end of some of these behavior modification programs. Because, uh, uh, so eventually most of these behavior programs were like shut down or suppressed. Uh, token economies for rehabilitation was stopped, and supports of the the pro or supporters of the approach felt that uh, rehabilitation had failed, and people thought uh, criminal behavior should result in appropriate uh, retribution for a period of time. Uh, they didn't address the socio and economic factors that made it fail, though. Um, like I said, if you you know you. Someone was trying to uh, create new habits and new ways of, I guess, behaving. But if they go back in their communities, you know, it's, it's difficult for them to to live, and their communities are in a lot of pain. And it's it's hard for to maintain that. Um, and these most of the time, these behavior modification programs don't really take that into. They don't really think about that. Um, so prisons moved away from a treatment model to a punishment model uh, in the 1970s, and society eventually came to see uh, behavior modification as part of the problem. Uh, people at the time questioned its values and what these behavior technologies intended to do with it. So the question of whether consent can be given voluntarily to 
uh, participants in programs when the environment is naturally like abusive or um, or pushes people to participate in these programs that there's not really room to volunteer to say to give uh, consent so that's that's what I mean and I think that's true like if you're in an environment that like a prison or a hospital or something where you don't really have um, where voluntary consent is kind of an illusion then um, I think that can lead to a lot of um, problems and I think a lot of people were concerned about that and and I'd be concerned about that as well uh, and then the public scrutiny uh, push behavior analysis analyst to create a certification cert certification process to try and monitor behavior practitioners um, what I found telling was the point that once behavior procedures are developed and tested that they don't need further professional oversight or even professional personnel and that's almost like a program or an algorithm like a piece of software or something or automation you know and I feel like a lot of automation and software engineering has its almost like relates to behavior modification and behavior engineering so it's a, once you have a behavior procedure up and running then you don't need personnel overseeing it and maybe that could be that could also lead to some problems um, uh, and then lastly behavior technology doesn't just stop with or it didn't just stop with schools and prisons um, it expanded into the larger society through self-help so even if behavior like people were scrutinizing behavior modification programs in prisons um, you know, it did, uh, Skinner's behavior technology did, did start spilling out into the self-help industry. And that's going to be the focus of my next show is talking about, um, cause the chapter after this does talk about, uh, how behavior, um, behaviorism, uh, influenced the self-help industry and how it's kind of, um, became part of it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to talk more about that in the next show. And for this show, I didn't get a chance to talk about everything in the chapter just because it is a, like, most of these shows, I try and cover as much as I can about a chapter in a book, but there's just some things that I don't include just for the sake of time. So this is where I really encourage listeners to, you know, if you like this book, just to check it out. I'll leave it a link um for the Beyond the Box book if you're interested in uh, reading it and you know you might be able to get it at your local uh, book sh uh, bookshop or uh, online somewhere because it's a really good book and it, it, it is kind of like you know helping it's helping me connect the dots and put the pieces together in terms of like this current <laughs> form of behavior technology that's uh, coming online with like the web 3 stuff um, because it's not just artificial intelligence and stuff like uh, chat G GPT and these other ones. There's a lot of other kind of Web3 technology that's out there that's not really being talked about. It's like they're just focusing on AI, um, you know, which has its place. But there's all this other stuff. But 
and someone who's done a lot of really good research about that is is uh, Allison McDowell and a few others as well. So I'll make sure to link to her um, her blog, the Wrench Wrench in the Gears, because uh, she also has a lot of really good resources and um, uh, like articles and and um, you know stuff that she's written that kind of helps provide more context for what is going on. Um, and I hope that this show helps people understand, like, kind of the wider society and just, like, the, you know, the current events that aren't really being talked about on the mainstream media but are really important. Um, so I'm going to leave it at, at that, t or leave leave the show here for today. Um, thanks for bearing with me. I know it's starting to sound a bit funny with, because I'm still battling the you know, whatever I had, like, it's not as bad as it was a couple weeks ago, but I appreciate your, um, uh, patience, and thank you for bearing with, bearing with me in this show, and I hope you have a blessed week and weekend, and, uh, thank you for stopping by the cafe, and we'll see you again at the next show. All right, bye-bye.